My name is Keith Cowart, lead pastor of Christ Community, and each week I or one of our pastors will bring a message that we pray will stir your heart. We believe that God is the source of life and truth and that His Word is one of the primary means through which we make that vital connection with God. It's our hope that whether you're already a believer or just beginning to open your heart to God, that the truth of His Word would point you to Him. He came that you would have life and that more abundantly. Now, I've got to confess to you that uh, I am definitely jet-lagged. I, uh, well, I get, we got in Friday night, and um, last night about 8 o'clock, I just could not keep my eyes open another second. Woke up about 4 o'clock this morning, which was good because I didn't have a message ready yet. I went to work, and um, it's just really crazy because uh, I'm here today ready to bring you this message. It's going gonna, it's gonna to cover something like... 75 verses, all right? And so uh, don't panic. This is not going to be a detailed verse-by-verse thing. Uh, This is a long passage, um, but there's a consistent theme and a very one question that everything leads up to, and that is, what will you do with Jesus? So I want to look at this whole thing. I mean, we could spend weeks just working through this passage. But um, the way we're coming at John is, is not to look at every single verse, but in essence to work through the highlights of this book so that we get the central message that John wanted us to have. Um, and so we're working through it in sections. And this is a long, long section. Um, we're not yet halfway through the gospel. Uh, but we are roughly halfway through Jesus' three years of earthly ministry. Now, I want to remind you at this point, because it's a good vantage point to do this, to remind you of the ultimate purpose behind John's gospel. John, in uh, chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, John says, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John is saying in effect here that that he has not made an attempt to record everything that Jesus has done. Rather, he is giving us something of a highlight reel of Jesus' life and ministry. But all of it is ultimately for the purpose of convincing them to believe. And that believing they might have eternal life. Now, the reason I want to remind us of this ultimate purpose is because here in chapters 6 and 7, the latter half of chapter 6 and the the entire chapter 7, we find a crisis of belief. A crisis of belief. That is a theme that runs all the way through the middle of chapter 6 through the end of chapter 7. The question is, who is he truly and what does it mean to believe in Jesus? That's what this section is about. Let me just remind you that we are about halfway through his ministry. Jesus has performed a number of miraculous signs. John has told us about a few of them. There are many that he's not told us about, but he's done a lot of miracles. Jesus has gained a reputation as a master teacher uh, who teaches unlike anyone people 
have ever heard. Uh, Jesus has, has, uh, has beginning to gain a huge following as he goes from city to city. The crowds continue to grow, and as the crowds grow, so do his enemies. Because there are many people who have a great vested interest in maintaining the loyalty of those who are now following Jesus. So everywhere Jesus goes, the more followers he gains, also the more enemies he gains. But it becomes real clear that it's not just the enemies of Jesus who are disturbed by the huge crowds. We begin to sense that Jesus himself is also uncomfortable with the huge crowds. Um, we, we, we begin to see that he doesn't come right out and say that. But we begin to sense that Jesus, uh, Jesus sees beneath the surface. Do you remember back in chapter 2? In chapter 2, John made this little statement at the very end of the chapter 2 where he says, Jesus knew what was in the heart of a man. Jesus didn't need anyone to tell him what was in, a heart, in the man's heart because he knew what was in the heart of a man. And it seems like that idea underlies much of what John has been uh, sharing with us through these first few chapters. He wants us to know that Jesus sees the genuine heart of the people. And here it seems that Jesus can look between the lines or look under the surface and see that many of those who are following him are following him simply because of his fame and not because they truly believe. So here in chapter 6 and 7, Jesus begins to draw a line in the sand. And he does that by beginning to reveal himself more clearly for who he really is and making sure that all of these people that follow him understand what it actually means to be his disciple, to be a follower of himself. Now, I want to just set the stage for you. Derek uh, covered much of this material over the last couple of weeks in the end of chapter 5 and the first half of chapter 6. But let me just remind you that Jesus has recently performed the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, right? So he fed the 5,000. The people loved that one, by the way. I mean, they loved that miracle. They benefited from it personally. Uh, They loved that their stomachs were filled. There's no question that throughout this section, John is making some parallels between this time of Jesus' ministry and the exodus of the Old Testament. He continually refers back to Moses, and he begins to talk about uh, the manna even. There's, there's no question that the, the, the bread that Jesus fed the 5,000 was somehow connected to this provision of manna for the people of Israel coming out of Egypt. And just like those people, these people begin to complain. And they say to Jesus, well, that was pretty impressive, Jesus. I mean, feeding 5,000 people with two fishes and five loaves was impressive. But Moses fed the people of Israel for 40 years, every day for 40 years. Is this all you're going to do? You're just going to feed us once? Are you going to keep feeding us over and over again? Now, Jesus confronts them here immediately and helps them to understand that their thinking is completely off. He says, first of all, don't forget, Moses didn't feed the people of Israel anything. It was God who fed them. 
God sent manna straight from heaven. And if you really had ears to hear, what you would begin to understand is that right now, God is trying to give you a different kind of bread. He is giving you a different kind of bread that will not just feed your stomachs for a day, but will feed your soul forever. But Jesus understands that for many of these people, they would rather have their stomachs fed for a day than think about the idea of having their souls fed forever. And so Jesus sees beneath the surface exactly where they are. So he begins to teach them about this bread from heaven. And he makes the statement at some point that I am the bread of life. He's saying what you really need is something that will feed your souls. And I am that bread. And it's then and toward the end of chapter 3 that Jesus makes a very strange and you might even say disturbing statement when he says to them, I am the bread of life and unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have nothing to do with me. Now remember, these were Jewish people Jesus was talking about, talking to. And for them, the idea of drinking blood was absolutely uh, abhorrent. I mean, Jews never drink blood. They understood that you don't do that. And so Jesus has just offended them, but he's saying to them, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have nothing to do with me. Now, as you can imagine, a lot of people decided at that point, I'm out of here. This guy is loco. He's crazy. I mean, what in the world did Jesus mean here? I'm not going to get into this yet. We're going to come back to this a little later. But let me just say here at this point that we may look at this and think that that's why people began to fall away, but the truth of the matter is they knew more of what he was truly saying than they let on. The problem was not that they didn't understand what he meant. The problem is that what he was saying to them was very costly. It was very costly. And so people began to fall away. In fact... According to John, most of the people that were following him, most of that crowd of 5,000 chose to leave him at that time. And then Jesus is left there with his disciples. And he turns to them. And there's this really beautiful and powerful, intimate moment with Jesus and just the 12. And he says to them, are you going to leave me as well? And Peter responds, as he often did for the rest of the group. Peter responds and says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life. To whom shall we go? You have the words of life. Now the truth is that in his question, Jesus already knew the answer. I mean, in Greek, uh, when you ask a question, there's a way to determine whether the anticipated response is a yes or a no. And the way Jesus asked the question, he anticipated a yes. And he says to them, you didn't choose me, I chose you. I have called you to myself and you belong to me. But they have responded with belief. Well, Jesus continues to minister in the the region of Galilee because it's safer there. He almost died the last time he was in Jerusalem. And so he's ministering in Galilee until up until the time of the Feast of the Tabernacles. 
Now, I don't have time to go into the details of that feast, but it was one of the most popular feasts of the year. It was a time where as many Israel, Israelites as were able came to Jerusalem, to literally pitched their tents. Somebody said that the Feast of Tabernacles was like, you know, a great Jewish camp out. I mean, everybody just came to Jerusalem, pitched their tents, and had a week of great celebration. Well, the time of the Feast of Tabernacles was there. And Jesus' brothers said to him, Jesus, you need to go up to Jerusalem. Now, we're not real sure what their motives were. But John does not leave to chance the understanding that whatever their motives were, they were not rooted in belief. Because he says it straight out in verse 5. Even his brothers did not believe on him. Maybe they were jealous. Maybe they had visions of a military or political leader and and that's why they said go to Jerusalem and do some more miracles and hold a few more revivals and gain more popularity. They were pushing him toward their agenda. But they didn't truly believe in who Jesus was. Well, Jesus says to them, I'm not going back to Jerusalem. The truth is he is, but he's not going to do it on their timetable. And he's not going to do it in their way. So they leave and go back to Jerusalem. Jesus waits a few days until the festival is halfway over. And then he shows up and begins to teach in more of a, an out-of-the-way environment, where, which is much less public and a little more secret. And he begins to teach. And as he teaches, the people are just amazed I mean, the people are saying no one has ever taught like this. Some people uh, believed in him, but others said, no, he's, he's really good, but he's deceiving you. He's a deceiver. And so it's clear that public opinion about Jesus is very divided still. Some think he is awesome. Some, some think he is a deceiver. Well, the Pharisees begin to hear rumblings that Jesus is teaching somewhere in town. And so they call in some officers and command them to go and to apprehend Jesus and bring them back to the Pharisees. Well, they finally get there, but when they get there and they hear him teach, John didn't tell us exactly. Either they couldn't or they wouldn't arrest him. And they go back to the Pharisees, and when the Pharisees say, why didn't you bring Jesus with you? Their response was this. No one has ever spoken this way. No one has ever spoken this way. Now, we don't know for sure if they were believers yet, but we can know for certain that they had come face to face with the one who has the words of eternal life. There was something in Jesus that was radically different. And yet still, people are greatly divided. It goes on to say that some people said he was a Christ. Some people said, no, he's possessed by a demon. And so you see these radically divergent views of who Jesus really was. Well, it's about this time that... As uh, Jesus, he, goes, he does go on to tell them uh, that he is the source of living water and that anyone who is thirsty can come and if they drink, they will have water that will uh, overflow out of them into all the world. And once again, people are divided over that. And so we come to this place where there's great division over who Jesus actually is. Now, what is the significance of all this? 
As we've already said, Jesus knew what was in the heart of a man. And that not everyone who was following him was a true believer. And so what he's doing here is he's beginning to reveal himself more clearly and calling people to make a decision to deal with him for who he truly is. The result is divided. Some believe, some do not. Some are inspired, some are enraged. Some exalt him as Christ, others see him as demon-possessed and want to kill him. A few, there's one little verse in there, it says, a few of them said, he surely, this is a good man. Now, as I read through this, I couldn't help but remember a very famous quote from C.S. Lewis. Maybe some of you are already ahead of me, and you're thinking that as well. But C.S. Lewis, let me just share the quote with you. It comes out of his book, In Mere Christianity. And he says here, I am trying here to prevent saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. And and here's what they say. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or he would be the devil of hell. Do you hear what he's saying here? He says there are all kinds of opinions about Jesus. And you can look at his life and his teachings and you can draw your conclusion about who he was. But there's one thing that we cannot say about Jesus. And that is simply that he was a good man. Because Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. And it is here in the 6th and 7th chapter of John that he makes that claim first in the most, untrans- in the most transparent way. He is clearly claiming here, he says, I am the bread of life. I have come from God and the only way that you're going to get to God is through me. I am the spring of living water. And if you come and drink from me, you will have life eternal. Lewis makes the right assessment here when he says, you can't say that that man is simply a good man. Because if all he was was a good man... He was leading thousands, millions over the centuries to their death following after one who was deceived or or, or a lunatic at best. Jesus says you can say he is a lunatic or you can say he is Lord, but you can't simply say he's a good man. Now, I don't have time this morning to go into all the argument about how Lewis personally came to the conclusion that if I have to choose between lunatic or Lord, the choice is very clear. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Let me tell you, he came to that not as a child or or a teenager, but as a full-grown adult who was a philosophy major, who was a very self-proclaimed atheist. But as he began to read the life of Jesus... He began to see that this man surely had the words of eternal life. Jesus was the Son of God. And Lewis converted to Christianity. And he spent much of his life speaking often to intellectuals to help them to understand that that people may be liars and they may be lunatics, but you don't go to the grave and people who follow you don't go to the grave for a lunatic or a liar. 
It is only because they saw Jesus, the Son of God, risen from the dead after the resurrection that they understood here truly is the Son of God. So Lewis says to us this morning, you can't simply say Jesus was a good man. Um, all of that leads... Well, let me go back, and, and there's this... Uh, you know, you, people were divided over Jesus in his day, but let's be very clear that people are still divided over Jesus today. Um, and I'm not just talking about the division between those who call themselves Christians and those who confess to be atheists or agnostics or or whatever else they may be. I'm actually talking here about many people who are sitting in the church week after week because you got to remember that Jesus was speaking not to those who were against him. He was speaking to those who were following him. And many of them turned away as he helped them to understand what true discipleship really is. And so Jesus is talking to people, for example, who, like the 5,000, want a God who will keep their bellies full. They want a God who will make their lives work. They want a God who will show them the way to live so that their lives will be maximized in this world. That's fine. Give me that God. I'll take that God. There are many who want to join a political or social movement cloaked in religion. Lots of folks are up for that. Uh, There are many people who still believe that, that, that somehow you can get your way to heaven by being a good man and that Jesus is the best example to follow. You see, those are all the kinds of people that Jesus was speaking to when he told them, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood or you can have nothing to do with me. And they started falling away like flies. Why? You see, that's the key verse here. That's when people began to fall away. That's when people began to... That's when the line was drawn in the sand. And what in the world was Jesus talking about when he made that statement? Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have nothing to do with me. N.T. Wright, a great theologian, who reminds us of an incident in David's life in the Old Testament. This was before he was a king. He was running for his life. He had his uh, warriors around him. He had his 30 mighty men, 30 mighty men who would do anything for him. And, and there's a story in 2 Samuel where Jesus is, uh, not Jesus, here's my jet lag uh, kicking in, where David is very tired and thirsty from running from Saul he begins to to remember the sweet waters of Jerusalem. And he kind of starts talking out loud, and he says, boy, I would just give anything for a glass of that sweet water from Jerusalem. And that night, as he goes to bed, three of his mighty men decide, we're going to get David some of that water from Jerusalem. And so they set out at great risk to their own lives on a secret mission. They sneak into Jerusalem. They get some of that water. They put it in some kind of container. They take it back to David and they give it to him. They say, David, here is your sweet water from Jerusalem. And when David receives it, he realizes that they have just risked their lives to bring him a cup of water. 
And he says, I cannot drink the blood of these men. I cannot drink the blood of these men. You hear what he's saying? He's saying this water symbolizes their very lives. I can't drink this water because it's too precious. These men just risked their lives to bring me this water. I'm not worthy to drink this water. And he pours it on the ground. N.T. Wright says that that is exactly what Jesus is saying. Only this time, Jesus is saying, you must drink this water. Because there is no other way to get to heaven. There's no other way to eternal life. You must drink this water. Wright's saying that what he's saying here is this, that, that, that his flesh and his blood are a symbol of his very life. And they must deal with him in order to find that life that is eternal. What this is, is a clear call to abandonment to Jesus as Lord. Jesus is saying, you must receive all of me, and I must have all of you, or you cannot be my follower. That's what he means in this verse, and they understand that that's what he means, and that's the reason that they begin to fall away. And I just want to remind us this morning that that line in the sand is still here today. That is the line in the sand. Being a follower of Jesus is not about being an admirer of Jesus. Being a follower of Jesus is is not ultimately about basing your life on a philosophy rooted in his teachings. Being a follower of Jesus is not ultimately about uh, living a moral life that reflects the kind of life that Jesus lived. And it is certainly not about being a member of an institution that bears his name. I can tell you that just this past week, Pam and I were in Rome, the Vatican City, where institutional religion is everywhere. Uh, And let me just say this. Please, I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying, because I will tell you very quickly, there are Catholics that dearly love God, and there are free Methodists that don't have a clue. This is not about Catholicism or free Methodists. What I'm saying is that there are many people who attach themselves to an institution called the church. And Jesus is saying that has nothing to do. I mean, not that it's not beneficial, but that's not what it's about. That's not ultimately what it's about. Jesus is saying here, you must deal with me. Not my teachings, not my examples, You must deal with me. That's what he means when he says, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. You must deal with me, and you must let me deal with you. You receive all of me into your being, and I get all of you, or you're not worthy to be my follower. You can't be associated with me in that way. It's exciting to follow a celebrity. But Jesus was here drawing a line in the sand and saying, either I am Lord or I am lunatic, but you must choose between the two. Don't just say I'm a good man. I'm either crazy or I am truly the Son of God. If you're going to follow me, you must come after me with your whole lives. You know, as we were with the missionaries on this retreat, Daryl Riley, our superintendent, 
shared a message on the last day that he called All In. That was the title of his, uh, his message. And he referenced and then gave all of us this book by Mark Batterson um, called Going All In. And in the preface to this book, Batterson talks about a group of missionaries. It's interesting that we've got missionaries here this morning who are about to go to Bulgaria. But he talks about a group of missionaries a, a long time ago called one-way missionaries. One way, can I just read this to you? It's not very long. Let me just read what he says because I think it's profound and it's inspiring. He says, a century ago, a brave band of, a band of brave souls became known as one-way missionaries. They purchased single tickets to the mission field with no return ticket. And instead of suitcases, they packed their few earthly belongings in coffins. And as they sailed out of port, they waved goodbye to everyone they loved, everything they knew. They knew they would never be home again. A.W. Milne was one of these missionaries. He set sail for the new Hebrides, for the new Hebrides in the South Pacific, knowing full well that the headhunters who lived there had martyred every missionary before him. Milne did not fear for his life because he had already died to himself. His coffin was packed. For 35 years, he lived among that tribe and loved them. When he died, tribe members buried him in the middle of their village and inscribed this epitaph on his tombstone. When he came, there was no light. When he left, there was no darkness. When he came, there was no light. When he left, there was no darkness. Batterson goes on to say, When did we start believing that God wants to send us to safe places to do easy things? That faithfulness is holding down the fort. That playing it safe is safe. That there is any greater privilege than sacrifice. That radical is anything but normal. Faithfulness is not holding the fort. It's storming the gates of hell. The will of God is not an insurance plan. It is a daring plan. The complete surrender of your life to the cause of Christ is not radical. It is normal. It's time to quit living as if the purpose of life is to arrive safely at death. It's time to go all in and all out for the all in all. Who's willing to pack your coffin? See, that's what Jesus was getting at. And that's why more and more people began to fall away. And so this morning, that is our question as well. What will you do with Jesus? What will you do with Jesus? A lot of people have tried to say that this whole thing about eating my flesh and drinking my blood is about communion, that Jesus was giving them an early hint of holy communion. Let me say, I don't believe that's true at all. Uh, at this point, Jesus hadn't told anyone about holy communion. It's clear that what Jesus was saying is, you must deal with me as Lord and Savior. Brother, sister, I'm asking you this morning, 
to let God search your heart. What have you decided about Jesus? Is he Lord or is he a liar or a lunatic? But please don't say today he's a good man and I admire him. He has given his all for you. He has given everything for you. And the way to life is to receive him as Lord. And now we understand why Peter said what he said. When Jesus said, will you too fall away? And, Jesus, and, and Peter said to him, to whom shall we turn? Where shall we go? For you have the word of life. In other words, Peter is saying, Jesus, we have tasted and we have drunk of your life. We have tasted your life. We have drunk of your life. And there is nothing else in this world that satisfies. To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. I want to challenge you this morning with that question. I'm going to ask those who are preparing communion to come and prepare the elements. But I want to say this morning that this is a great time for you to ask yourself that critical question. What will I do with Jesus? What will I do with Jesus? Can you say this morning that he is Lord? Can you say this morning that you have eaten his flesh and you've drunk his blood? You have received him fully and that he has all of you. Let me just say, if there's anyone here this morning that can't with confidence say, yes, I know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And I have put my trust in him not just for forgiveness of my sins, but to be the Lord of my life. If there's anyone here this morning that can't answer that question positively, please know that there are going to be people here ready to pray with you. Please come and just raise your hand and someone would be glad to pray with you and to lead you to a place of beginning belief in Christ. Others of you may have needs as well. You may have a need for healing or, or just have a, a financial need or relational need in your life. These altars are open for you as well. Feel free to invite someone to come and pray with you if you'd like, or just come and kneel and pray for yourself. But let me ask you, if you will now, just to stand, and let's begin to respond as Jesus moves on your heart. What will you do with Jesus?
those who are still praying, stay and pray as long as you need. But I want to send you out with this reminder and these words from John 7, 37 through 38. I do want to invite anyone who may be here for the first time uh, to come by the Resource Center. I would love to meet you and welcome you to Christ's community. 
for everyone else, let me send you forward with these words. Beginning in verse 7. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. Today, may you be filled with his life. And this week as you go and leave this place, may that life overflow and come out of you everywhere you go that people will see over and over again this week that you know the one who has the words of eternal life. May God bless you today as you go. Amen. Lord, I need Bye.